You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Pastor Wolfmuller. Today we get to reflect on... <laughs> there it is. Okay. There it is. <laughs> we get to talk with Pastor Wolfmuller today. Yesterday, the, the church commemorated Cyprian of Carthage. So we're going to learn about Cyprian today in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, the Reverend Brian Wolf Miller. He's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, and our go-to guy when we're talking about church commemorations and saints. Pastor Wolf Miller, thanks so much for joining us on the Coffee Hour. Glad to be here. Thank you. So, Pastor, the the church on September 16th, so yesterday, commemorated Cyprian of Carthage. Who is, who was Cyprian of Carthage? Yeah, he was... He was the Bishop of Carthage, which is why he's known as Cyprian of Carthage. He was born in the year 210. His birth name was Thasius, and he was a Berber, so he was from North Africa, kind of that Roman region where they had settled in North Africa. And and he apparently grew up in a wealthy family and was pretty well-to-do. He kind of reminds me of St. Augustine in that way. He sort of had everything going from him from an earthly perspective. He was a lawyer, but he seemed like he was kind of a public discourser, so sort of a, a public figure. But he was he encountered Christians there in his town and was convinced by the argument that they were making. And he was eventually baptized in the year 245 when he was 35 years old. So as an old, well, as a young man, I suppose now, but older than most. And he was immediately made a deacon and then a priest. So he, it's kind of, again, like St. Augustine, one of these things where you're studying a lot and reading a lot and working on a lot of theology before your baptism. And it's three years later in the year 248 that he becomes Bishop of Carthage. His appointment as a bishop was contested uh, quite a bit but not during his life. It came up later because there was a number of controversies uh, that that happened during the the bishopric of Cyprian, the 10 years that he was there, that a lot of controversies that surrounded him, and a lot of those would be revisited by the, his contemporaries after his death. I'm curious, do you know more about his his conversion? That seems like a very interesting story to be this this rich and very well-to-do person and then come into the church at 35 and then what, give away? He gave away all of his, or a large portion of his wealth after that happened? Yeah, he, he did. He was, there's sort of, uh, apparently, and, and I don't know too much about this in Roman society, but there's these sort of levels of wealth or success there was a it was a very stratified society and there, there so there was the senatorial class and then the equestrian class and and that would have been just below them so this is a very it's upper class or very very high middle class and they're the people of this rank were to be known for their generosity so one of the things that happens when cyprian's baptized he takes the name cyprian on the man who helped convert him. I don't know if we know anything about that particular priest or very little, but then when he was converted, he gave away a lot of his wealth. And that's probably what won him over for the people 
who were there in Carthage. That he was he was known then for his generosity. And I think it's interesting to go back and, and think about this. I, I think about it for our own day, is that Christianity was an argument. And it was an argument that was standing against the other arguments of the day. So the emperor cult or the Epicureans or the, the, the Stoics, especially in the Roman Empire, were making an argument for this is what the good life is and this is how we should live. And Christianity came along and says, we also have a way of life and a way of living. And it has to everything to do with the suffering, death, and resurrection of God in our own flesh, of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth. And that this Jewish peasant, crucified by the Romans, would make such a compelling argument for the well-to-do of Rome, of the Roman Empire, like Cyprian, is a is a important thing for us to remember. I mean, I think especially in our day, as we see the church and seemingly the church's place in the in the argument or in the conversation, in the public conversation of this world, we see that being diminished more and more. It's good to remember these stories and to remember that the Christian, um, the Christian gospel, as it comes to us as a as an argument, as a presentation of truth is true and compelling. And it was compelling to Cyprian, who then was who was baptized and changed his name and changed the whole course of his life. Christianity as an argument. I, I think you said it, at that time it was an argument. What about today? What, what have we learned from that era, from that time of Cyprian and from Cyprian him, him, himself about Christianity and for us today. Sure. Well, it was such a compelling argument that maybe mm, 50 or, or 55 years after Cyprian's death, the entire Roman Empire is mm, Christianity is declared first legal and then declared to be the religion of the empire uh, in the Edict of Milan. And so that that argument that we see happening in in Cyprian's life becomes the compelling argument in for Constantine and for the Roman emperors, and that becomes the the foundation of really Western civilization as it's come to us. Now, there's a bunch of problems that come along in the church, you know, from early times and and later times as well. But the idea that Christianity which is a, a prophetic declaration from heaven that our sins are forgiven, but that it also gives us a comprehensive understanding of the origin of the world, of the conclusion of the world, and of our place and purpose in the midst of this world. Christianity comes to us as the most compelling worldview. In fact, I, would, I, want, I don't like that language of worldview. I don't know any other better language to use, but it, it, I think the problem with worldview is that it's, it gives other options, you know, like, well, this is your worldview and this is my worldview and every worldview is equal. But Christianity, it turns out, is the only sustainable frame of thought for for life to make sense. And and that's a hard one for us today because we live in such a pluralistic society. We want to be uh, tolerant of all sorts of other ideas, which which is fine. But every other idea, aside from the ideas of the prophets and the apostles, the truth that is taught by Jesus, all the other ideas are wrong and wrong in the sense of being not only untruthful, but unhelpful. 
they, they're dangerous. So every, every step away from Christian truth is a step towards darkness and, and death. And that's, and that's dangerous for us to, to, I mean, it's hard for us to realize that. And it's dangerous for people who are doing that. So we just look at our current society. We say, Hey, you know, we're having a big debate about, Oh, maybe just, let's just take marriage. We're having a big debate about marriage. Does marriage even matter? What is marriage? Does marriage need a man and a woman, or can any other arrangement also be called marriage? What What is this thing? And this is a question of, of basic right and wrong in what it means to be human beings. And the Christian truth has a really compelling argument about, about marriage. It, it talks about marriage in terms of creation, that God created man and woman in his own image, that God gave Adam and Eve to one another, that he gave them dominion and the command to be fruitful and multiply, that he uh, promised that they would be one flesh and that they should never be separated. And not only that, but we see the St. Paul using the picture of marriage as a picture of how it is with Jesus and the church. So the, 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 the resurrection is given to us as the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so we have this very full and lively and joyful and beautiful understanding of marriage. And that's a compelling story. That's a compelling argument. The world has different stories. It's trying to tell the story of marriage, which is the public affirmation of people's deep emotional experiences, which is fine. But it's, I mean, you know, people can tell the story they want, but it's, it's not right and it's not good. It doesn't capture the fullness of what the of what Christianity would would bring to the to the conversation. So I don't think we need to be afraid or ashamed or scared to bring the Christian argument into the public uh, square today because the truth is always best and the best is the truth and what we have in Jesus is the truth. Absolutely. Speaking of, of this, I don't know, these trials and tribulations that we may feel today, there was a lot of persecution going on at the time of Cyprian. What do we know about the the persecution that was happening, especially in Carthage uh, at, around the time of Cyprian? Yeah, there was this kind of a time of peace at the very beginning of his baptism and bishopric. But then in the year 250, that ended. And so there was two major persecutions the Decian persecution, Decius was the Roman Empire in 250, and then the Valerian persecution, even more intense, in 256. So, and those two persecutions and the and the plague that came to Carthage in between, which is called Cyprian's plague, it's kind of amazing. Probably not because he caused it, but because he talked about it. But you have the the first persecution, and then a plague, and then the second persecution in which Cyprian was the uh, bishop. In the first one. He fled town. He left. And this was the cause of a lot of controversy. Can you leave in times of persecution? And Cyprian defended his actions he, he, that he wanted the church to have a shepherd during the time of persecution. Maybe he did what he did was right. Maybe, maybe not. But I think it became pretty clear afterwards because there was the controversy following about what happened to the people who fell away from their faith during the time of persecution. And and this gives rise to what's called the Novation controversy. It would later be the Donatist controversy. They're kind of related controversies. But the question is, if a Christian, well, there's a couple of options. So the Roman emperors would come and say, hey, 
uh, you can't just be Christian. You got to worship the emperor too. You got to go and offer this sacrifice and say Lord Caesar and worship the emperor. And if you do, then we won't kill you. So the Christians would either go and offer the incense to to Caesar, or they would get these papers that said that they made the offering. Maybe they maybe they didn't, and in order to avoid death or exile or whatever. And the question is that when the time of persecution was over, what do you do? with the people who fell away, with the lapsed. It's called the lapsy controversies. What do you do with those who lapsed, who, who renounced Christ in order to save their own neck? And there was two arguments. There was Novation of Rome who said, that's it. If you lapsed, you're out. And then there was Novatus of Carthage. Well, it's nice that they had very different names, Novatus and Novation. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Novatus of Carthage said, no, no, we should make it very easy for them to come back in. We should just have a small little penance and they can come back. And and Cyprian came in with a sort of mediating position. He, he maybe recommended rebaptism or at least a, a more stringent form of penance for people to be uh, readmitted to the church. And he kind of won the day in that argument, at least for the more severe form of penance, which would later become Lent. I mean, the season of Lent began, at least as I understand it, hmm. as that season of seven weeks of repentance and wearing ashes and so forth to to indicate your sorrow over having denied Christ in the time of persecution. And then you would be readmitted to the Lord's Supper at Easter time. And so there was this sort of, you had to go through a process to get back into the church to indicate that your repentance was sincere, but you could get back in. That's uh, that's always a possibility. We're learning about Cyprian of Carthage with the Reverend Brian Wolf Miller. He's pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Staff Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. We have more to learn in just a moment. We'll be right back here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Pastor Wolfmiller. We're learning about Cyprian of Carthage. <laughs> Pastor <laughs> Brian Wolfmiller of St. Paul and Jesus Staff Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor, we've been learning a bit about the history of Cyprian of Carthage and what was happening in his life at that time, what was going on in the church at that time. Why, why learn about Cyprian of Carthage and, and those who have gone before us how is this helpful to us today as we learn more about the, the the saints who have gone before us? Well, these guys are heroes, you know, especially as we get... So So Cyprian has a big role to play as he shepherding the church through these times of persecution. And especially in this second persecution, the Valerian persecution in, in 256, he, he stays and he is plugged right in there. He is... Um, refuses to offer the sacrifice. And so he's 
He's exiled for two years. He's examined. We have that conversation, his court case preserved for us. And we can maybe look at parts of that. I can grab a hold of that. He writes in the middle of that, an exhortation to martyrdom and a lot of works that are there. But these guys, I think, best serve us because they encourage us. They, they, they ennoble us. They, they teach us what it's like to truly suffer. And, and it inspires us so that we, they, they are part of that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 co- commends to us, that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So the saints and the martyrs have gone before us, and they remind us that, hey, the Christians can do this. I was, I was looking at, um, at Cyprian's encouragement to martyrdom, and he talks about the Christian being an athlete for Christ and a soldier of Christ. These are the two big pictures that these guys used to use. And, and this reminds us that we, are, that we are in a contest, that we're in a battle, and that it's difficult, uh, that, that it's hard, but that the Lord is with us. And I, I think especially as we um, are, are facing trouble and persecution, it's wonderful uh, that the, these, these martyrs remind us that they made it by the, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit and by the comfort of Christ, and we too can make it. I am curious to know more about that trial. What what do we have from maybe what he spoke at that trial or, or what happened at, at that after that Valerian persecution? Yeah, I was trying to find, I was looking in Eusebius to, to try to find the original, how, how the original thing was recorded, but I couldn't track that down. But we we find some of this in some of the old martyr stories. So here's here's part of the conversation. Maximus, Galerius Maximus, which sounds like a, a Roman pro- proconsul name. He says, are you Thasius Cyprianus? I am, he says. The most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian says, I refuse. Galerius says, take heed for yourself. This was always, the, I, I love this in, the, in these trials of the martyrs, how the the emperors were always blaming the Christians for the trouble that they were getting. So it's, it's like, look, you don't have to die. All you have to do is this little thing. It's your fault that you're going to die. It's like, well, wait a minute. You're the one that's dragging me up here, requiring me to offer the incense to Caesar. You're the one with the sword and the fire. It's not, you're acting like it's my fault, but these Romans are always passive aggressive like that. Anyway, a Cyprian says, do as you bid. In such a clear case, I may not take heed. And then Galerius says, You have long lived an irreligious life. You have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome. So so that actually is quite nice because it gives us the three accusations that the Christians would have to face a long time. Number one, that they were atheist or irreligious. And that's an amazing thing for us to think about because, you know, for us now, an atheist is the opposite of a Christian. But the first Christians were accused of being atheists. And the way I, I like to explain it is if, if you have $10,000 and I have $1 and you say to me, do you have any money? And I say, yeah, I've got a dollar. And you say, oh, you're broke. You don't have any money. <laughs> and I think that's how the Romans thought of it. They had 10,000 gods. The Christians had one, which means you're basically broke. One, you might as well not have any. So they accused them of being atheists. And then it said, 
you have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association. And that was part of the, the trouble that the Christians faced as well, that they were, it was unlawful assembly. When the Christians would gather together, the Romans understood them to be gathering together for political reasons, to be plotting associations, or to be overthrowing the state or whatever. They understood that if all these people, families, men were getting together, that they must be plotting some sort of dastardly deeds that had to be stopped. And this is another amazing thing, is that the church gathered for non-political reasons to, to hear the word of God, to grow in wisdom and comfort and courage, to eat the body and blood of Jesus. And the, the Roman Empire couldn't understand that at all. So for the political creature, everything is political. And there's no capacity for them to understand the gathering together of the church as a non-political act. And this is this also has great application for our day because everything in the secular world is understood in terms of politics. I mean, I saw this in the reaction to the Texan, Texas abortion prohibition bill that passed a couple of weeks ago. And, and people said, well, who's going to help the babies? We need a better social safety net so that the unwanted babies can be cared for. And it just occurred to me that that everything has to be done by the government because the government is like the only estate that exists for the political person. So also for the Romans, they were obsessed with politics. So you're getting together, it must be for some sort of political thing. And then it says, you professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome. So that this, this theology of the Roman Empire was being explicitly denied when Christians said, Lord Jesus, they were explicitly denying Lord Caesar. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. But if Caesar is demanding what belongs to God, then you can't do it. That's Caesar's fault, not ours. But anyway, it says you've endeavored in vain to bring back, or we have endeavored in vain to bring you back to conformity with their religious observances, that is, with Rome. Wherefore, you have been apprehended as principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes. You shall be made an example to those whom you have wickedly associated. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood. And then he read the sentence written on a tablet. It is the sentence of this court that Thassius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. And Cyprian said... Thanks be to God. <laughs> this is so bad. The martyrs were so thankful, joyful in the midst of their persecution. So he kneeled down. He Apparently he blindfolded himself and they cut off his head. And that was on September 14th in the year 2058, which is why that commemoration happened yesterday. That's the day uh, of his martyrdom. That, that, that brings me to the last question. I don't know if this is really all that significant, but looking at how different church bodies commemorate him, some it's, let's see, I think it's the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church commemorates him on August 31st, and then other churches, it's between September 13th and the 16th. Any idea why there why there's such a, a range of dates? It, it, I don't know if it's all that significant, but I was just curious. Well, you know, so a lot of the dates of the commemoration of these old saints have to do not with the day that they were killed or the day that they were born, but rather the day that some chapel was dedicated with their with their relics. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of the saints days are on days when like the bones were moved from one place to another. I think that's the case with Peter and Paul and the case with Titus and some of these guys. So the church has their bones hanging around. And if you move the bones from one place to another, then that rededication of the place with the bones then gets that date every year. So that would be my best guess. I would imagine that the Eastern Orthodox have the some place have a lot of the relics of Cyprian and maybe his skull or uh, maybe his his body it was moved from one church to another on August 30th. But I could be totally wrong about that. But that that's normally how these things go. <laughs> it was a, a good educated guess. <laughs> well, Pastor, thank you so much for helping us learn about Cyprian of Carthage, commemorated by the church on September 16th. Uh, Pastor Brian Wolf Miller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Thanks so much for being our guest on the Coffee Hour. Thanks for having me. God be praised. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Pastor Wolf Miller. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.